Thank you, brother, for that song service. Um, Our Lord asked His Father to glorify His name once in the Gospel of John, and the Father's response was, I have glorified it before, and I will do it again. So, with that in mind, please turn with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 15 and we'll go through verse 23. I want to look at three things this evening. I want to look at who Christ is, what Christ has done, and what that means for us, the believer. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you this evening humbly, thanking You that we may come to You, thanking You for the work of the cross, the work that Christ did to bring us to reconciliation with You. I pray, Father, that we would glorify You here tonight. I pray, bear me up by Your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that You would allow me to show Your people more of You. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. So who is this Christ? Paul is addressing the Colossians because apparently they don't know who Christ is. And in verse 15 he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This word image is the word from which we get icon. This word image is an exact imprint The image of the invisible God. When people were created, we were created in the image of God. We go back to the garden in Genesis. And we see God says, let us make man in our own image. And Adam was the perfect image of God. And everyone after Adam, after the fall, was marred by sin. So while we are still created in the image of God, we are not the perfect image of God. It's still there, but it's scarred up, it's scuffed, it's marred. We've been uh, been scarred up by sin. 
But Adam was not the last Adam. This last Adam, this Christ, was born of a virgin. And without a father, the sin nature wasn't passed to him, so that he would be the perfect image of God. Such that Christ can say in the Gospels, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Later he would say, I and the Father are one. Christ is the image of the invisible God. That which we have not seen, Christ made known to us. The prologue of John lets us know that Christ actually exegeted God for us. Because no one had seen God, but this Christ who had come, John 1 says, made Him known to us. He showed us who God is. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this does not mean that Christ was a creature. He wasn't the first being created, despite what the Jehovah's Witness will tell you. Christ was the firstborn of all creation. This means not that Christ was the first thing created, but that He was entitled to all creation as His inheritance. Read Psalm 2. I will make the nations your inheritance. Christ being the firstborn of all creation is very important. If we understand the culture that Paul is writing in, the firstborn son was the one who was entitled the inheritance of the Father. This is why in Scripture several times you see that Christians are called the sons of God, not the sons and daughters of God. Because in Christ, we are given the inheritance from God. And in this culture, daughters didn't get inheritance. What Paul is driving home here is that Christ has a claim to all creation. In verse 16, he tells us why. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. But something that we overlook oftentimes in these passages is that it's not just Christ being talked about here. We see also the Father using Christ as an instrument of creation. We see the Word of God being spoken. The Father speaks and the Word acts in creation. For all things were created through Him. That word by in verse 16 could also be translated by means of. This indicates instrumentality and we see the Trinity here. It's not just Christ, despite what the Pentecostals will tell you. Christ did create all things, though. We can speak of creation happening through Christ, and we can speak of creation happening by Christ. The two are not contradictions. All things were created in heaven and on earth by Christ. 
visible and invisible. Let's think about this for a minute. All things were created by Christ. That means that the textbook on a student's desk was created by Christ. All of the materials used to make this textbook were created by Christ. All of the people you see are created by Christ. All of the human beings in their mother's wombs are created by Christ. All things are created by Him and through Him and for Christ. All things. But it's not just all things that are material. It's not just all things that we can see under a microscope. All things visible and invisible. So let's tease this out a little bit. Let's think, where in the universe does logic not apply? The laws of logic are invisible, immaterial. But they were also created by Christ. We hold that things cannot be both A and not A at the same time in the same way. Why? Because that would violate the nature of God. God created the universe to work in a certain way. And these invisible laws that govern the universe are His creation as well. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... Let's think about this. We see the King and Queen of England being here ascribed to Christ. Christ set them up and threw them down. Christ set up the emperors of Rome. Christ set up the king of Babylon. And it's on that authority that God actually made Nebuchadnezzar a beast for seven years. You see, if this, if this authority was not given to him by Christ, was not given to him by God, then God has no right to make him a beast for claiming it for himself. But he does. He does have this right because all things were created by him. All things were created through him. But not only this, they were created for him. So now we're given a direction for all things. All things are pointing somewhere. All things are created for Christ. It's not enough that all things were created by Him. It's not enough that all things were created through Him. But all things were created for Christ. Everything. This is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question... What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. We were created for Christ. That is merely a recognition of this truth. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. If you look at the prologue of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that word, in the beginning, means as far back as you can go. It's not a set point of time. This is a recognition of Christ's eternality. There's never been a time when Christ was not. Christ always was because Christ is God. 
And He is before all things. Before creation was, there was Christ. And believe it or not, before Trump was elected, there was Christ. He is before all things. But I don't think this is just talking about timelines. Right? Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic theologian way back. And he came up with what he called the cosmological argument for God. And basically, that's a fancy word for asking why a bunch. Well, I stubbed my toe. Why'd you do that? Well, because I, I kicked the chair. Well, why'd you do that? Well, I was, I was angry. Well, why were you angry? And eventually, you get back to the uncaused cause. You get back to God, right? There has to be something, someone, setting everything in motion. There can't just be an infinite regress. There has to be an uncaused cause. And that's what Paul is here saying. He is before all things. It's not simply that He existed before them, but He sets all things in motion. And if we look at the foundation of everything that happens, we see Christ. See Romans 8.28 For we know that God works all things for the good of those that love Him, who are called according to His purpose. If we do believe the Scriptures, then we believe that Christ sets all things in motion, and therefore Christ is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. I was reading a book by Nate Wilson entitled Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. And he goes through the absolute majesty of creation. He talks about how we're on a ball spinning at several thousand miles an hour and moving around the sun at something like 60,000 miles an hour. He says that this is a crazy universe. It's absolutely ridiculous. And he says that these scientists know what makes up everything. They they know what, what atoms are. And to make up an atom, you have the neutron and the proton and the electron. And he says, we even know what make up these these subatomic particles, is what they're called. He says, we know what make them up. They're quarks. These little bitty things that make up all of these atoms are called quarks. And he says, do you know what makes those up? We don't know. Nothing. Because at some point, when we get... Far enough down, we see that Christ, the Word of God, is what holds all things together. And in Him, all things hold together. We know that God holds all things together by the Word. He speaks and things hold together. The very fabric of reality is being held together now by Christ, as well as all of the atoms in your body. And as if this isn't enough, Paul goes on in verse 18. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. This is the crescendo. This is it. He says, yeah, he's the image of the invisible God. Yeah, he created all things. Yeah, um, he, he's before all things and all things were created for Him. But this is, this is the crowning point. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn 
from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. The firstborn from the dead. When Christ was crucified and died and was buried, as we all profess to believe, there was a period when all of the apostles hung their heads, when all of them were dejected and depressed. They went home defeated. And then after this period of three days, Christ emerges from the grave. He has His scars, but He's been given this glorified body. And we know that because Christ has emerged from the grave, we will emerge from the grave. It doesn't say that Christ is the only one to come back from the dead. It says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first. And you say, well, what about, what about the, the feller that He resurrected? What about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus died again. He wasn't resurrected, He was resuscitated. But Christ was the first person to be dead and then live to die no more. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Not only does He create all things, not only does He set all things in motion, not only does He hold all things together, but He defeats the very punishment for sin. He says that not even death can conquer Him. And He does all of this so that in everything He might be preeminent. That in everything He might be preeminent. He might be the pinnacle. He might be the thing to which everything looks. He might be the person to whom everything bows. Turn with me to the left just a page or two in Philippians Philippians 2, starting in verse 9. Speaking of Christ's obedience, His his obedience unto death, even the death of a cross, Paul says in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Brothers and sisters, He did all of this that in everything He might be preeminent. We don't give glory and honor and praise to anyone other than Christ. The Christians of the first century were killed, were crucified, were beheaded, were torn by lions, were burned at the stake because they wouldn't give praise to Caesar because Caesar was not preeminent. Christ is preeminent. And then as if paralleling that passage in Philippians, Paul goes on to tell us why. So we see now what Christ is. Who is this Christ? And now we see what Christ has done. Verse 19, 4. 
In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. But not only does the fullness of deity dwell in Christ, it acts in Christ. Indeed, God acts in Christ through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And we sing this great truth in that Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. The fullness of God acted through Christ to reconcile to Himself all things. Let's think about that. That all things are reconciled by the blood of the cross. All things are reconciled to Christ by Christ. All things. This doesn't just mean Christians. This doesn't just mean people. The creation itself groans, Romans 8 says. Everything that was put under subjection to sin groans for this. For the reconciliation. A reconciliation to Christ. As we discussed this morning, we said that sin was that which cuts off and severs communion with God. Thus, in order to restore this communion with God, reconciliation must take place. Forgiveness must take place. But God's holiness can't just forgive. It can't just sweep it under the rug. There has to be a penalty paid. And the penalty paid was through Christ. And the purchase of Christ was all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. No longer are we at enmity with the Father. No longer are we enemies of God. But we have been made peace with by the blood of Christ. This spotless Lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf has made peace for us. And that's, brothers and sisters, what this means for us. Look with me at verse 21. And you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And you. There's this idea out there that we're not really that bad off. Right. There are all sorts of what we call worldviews. And these worldviews must answer certain questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? Where did this come from and why is it here? 
And number two, what's wrong with it? We say, obviously, there must be something wrong with it. But there are a lot of people who say the problem isn't as bad as it seems. It's not, it's not that bad. We're actually pretty okay. We're alright, we're just sick. We just, we just need a little bit of help. Right? Give me some medicine and I'll get there, right? That's, that's, that's how we think. We say, no, I'm, I, I got it. Especially here in America, we say, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've got this. Raise your hand if you haven't said that. I can do this. I don't need help. It's not that bad. Do you know how the Bible describes your condition? You are dead in your sins and trespasses. Dead. We are unable to do anything. We can't take a step forward. We can't do anything. Do you know what a dead person can do? Stink. That's us. Here we are dead and decaying and ugly in a pit of our own sin. And Paul says, and you. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And you. Not not the guy who has it all together. Not the CEO of Apple. Not, Not the successful person. You. Who were once alienated. Who were once cut off from Christ. Who were once without God in the world. You. Who were hostile in mind. Who rejected not only God, but the idea of God. Who hated God. You. Doing evil deeds. Acting in accordance with your nature. Doing what came naturally. Lying, cheating, stealing. You. He has now reconciled. He has now reconciled. What a beautiful line in that song. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. We don't, we don't have to be that anymore. In fact, we've been set free. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been set free. And this all because Christ has reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. As we've said before, the wages of sin is death. And death must be paid. There there must be justice exacted. Someone must pay the penalty. And Christ 
paid that penalty for us. He reconciled us to Him in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you, this person who was left in their sins and trespasses, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You. Not only does He take you and and clean you up a little bit, He doesn't just, just take you and hose you off. No, He clothes you in His own robes of righteousness in order to present you holy, set apart from the world. You're not like everything else in the world. And we see this in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then the angel comes and places a hot burning coal on his lips from the altar, and he says, this has cleansed you. So now, it's not just that Isaiah is forgiven, he's set apart in order to present us holy before himself in order to present us holy and blameless. Paul says, who is there that will bring a charge against God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one. We are presented blameless because who can bring a charge against Christ? No one. It's not us that the charge is being brought against. It's the righteousness of Christ. So that whenever it's, we're confronted, so that whenever we're confronted with our sin, we can say, it was nailed to the cross. And the righteousness of Christ was given to me. Now, this is such a profound truth. Think about it this way. If we are given the righteousness of Christ, if Christ's righteousness was given to us, then we may say before the throne of God, it would be unjust for you to break fellowship with me. It would be unjust for you to punish your son on my behalf. It would be unjust for you to give me your son's righteousness and then cast me out of heaven. We may approach the throne of God with boldness as sons in Christ. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying pray tonight, God, you better let me in the gates of heaven. No, that's that's not the point. The point is that if you're a Christian, this is what's awaiting you. You will be presented before Christ holy and blameless and above reproach, or else... Christ failed. If His goal was to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, as this text says, it will be accomplished. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God. So that when we stand before God in Christ, in 
the robes of righteousness washed by His blood, Christ is all that is seen. And just like Jacob and Esau, we receive the blessing that Christ deserved. However, unlike Jacob and Esau, God means to give it to us. What a glorious truth this is. That Christ, who is all of these things, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the preeminence, who is the head of the body, the church, has acted on our behalf to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. But a word of warning, this is only applied to you if verse 23 applies to you. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If, indeed, you continue in the faith. Now, there's an idea, and I think it's pretty prevalent around here, that if you come to the front and you say a prayer and you're dunked in the baptismal waters, then you're good. You've made it into the gates of heaven and that's it. Now you can go cuss and drink and carry on, do whatever you want, right? I have my membership card, I get into heaven. No. Paul here says, if you continue in the faith, of those people, Paul would, or John would say, they went out from us that it may be demonstrated that they were never of us. Of those who depart from the faith, of those who walk away, they were never Christians. But we hear it all the time. They're preached straight into heaven. Why? Why do we water down the glory that's here presented? The glory of Christ. Because if we water this down, if we say that Christ is less than this, then there's no reason for us to continue in this faith. If Christ is less than what's here presented, we don't deserve these things. We ought to be laughed out of the building. And when we preach a Christ that's less than this, we're proclaiming to the world it doesn't matter that much. You got your membership card, you're good. And we're encouraging one another to depart, to walk away, to not continue in the faith, to be unstable. No, brothers and sisters, We are going to be presented before Christ in the robes of Christ if and only if we persevere in the faith. If we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. 
There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing. But that's not to say that we don't fall into sin. Right? Christians all the time sin. Again, I go back to Romans 7. What a comforting passage that is where Paul discloses to us the struggles that he has. We will not be perfect, but we must not at any point ever shift from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. We must remain stable and steadfast that Christ is the Savior. We must maintain with Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we must believe that. Luther would say that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We should preach to ourselves this message every day because we are wont to forget it every day. This gospel, this Christ, this is our hope. And Peter would put it this way, that if we continue, we would receive the end of our faith, which is salvation. And don't worry, right? I'm not saying that your salvation hinges on what you do. I'm saying that your salvation hinges on whether you truly believe in Christ. And if you truly believe in Christ, you will not stop believing in Christ. You will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and not shifting from the gospel which you heard. So that it doesn't depend on you, it depends on what Christ has done. Oh, brothers and sisters, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On what are you leaning this evening? Where are you? Do you believe in this Christ? Do you believe in the preeminence of Christ? Do you believe in this image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? Do you believe in the Creator, Christ? Or do you believe in something less than that? Were you to meet Him this evening, would you be holy and blameless and above reproach before Him? Would you? I pray, brothers and sisters, trust in what this Christ has done. Trust in the Lord. He will satisfy you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.